you please turn in your Bibles, book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 through 11 uh, this morning, but we're going to be starting at verse 3 to give us some context of this passage. And that's found on page 961 if you're using the, the Pew Bible. And last week we started this new section uh, in the letter focusing on the resurrection. And as we've seen, the, the problem that Paul was addressing is that some of the Corinthians had adopted the prevailing Greek view, and this Greek view which emphasized the spiritual over the physical, really really downplayed the, the, the physical, in some sense despised the physical. And what they were doing is they were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. We're just going to die and we'll be a spiritual being for, for all eternity. And Paul, in his typical logical fashion, he lays out as that if there is no resurrection, then Christ himself was not raised. And if Christ was not raised then the gospel that he preached is useless. And if the gospel is useless, then we are all lost. And last week I skipped over verses 9 through 11 because they're really an aside. They, they broke the main flow of the argument. But even these asides are, are chock full of, of theology, so I don't, I don't want to skip them. And they, actually this chapter is very dense and it's very long. And there's a lot of good stuff in here. We're going to be probably spending several sermons in here because I, I really want to squeeze every drop of blessing out of this chapter. So we'll be, we'll be going slowly through this chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you for this word. Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for this Lord's Day and this opportunity to expound your word. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, to guide me, to lead me, to speak through me. And Lord, for your spirit to open each of our hearts to hear from you. Lord, we want to be changed. This is not just a, a time of uh, encouragement. This is not just a time of, of gaining knowledge. This is a time that we have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that encounter must change us, must make us more like him, must make us more humble, more patient, more loving, more righteous. And Father, above all, we want to see you glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The most dangerous sin affecting the church, affecting born-again believers, and, and Christians are just as susceptible to this sin as unbelievers. This sin is insidious. It's a sin for which each one of us is vulnerable to falling prey to. And many of us, many of us are totally unaware of its presence, its presence in us. And it's a sin that will destroy our witness, destroy our fellowship, destroy the peace and purity of Christ's church, steal our joy, a sin that we must be ever vigilant against, always on guard against, that we don't fall victim to this sin. And this sin is pride. And pride is a cancer, cancer that eats at our soul. And this is why scripture provides so many warnings 
about pride. And it commands us to mercilessly put this sin to death wherever it is found. But Satan, Satan is so sneaky. He uses our vigilance and our, our rightful fear of succumbing to pride against us. And he does this by sowing confusion about the very nature of humility and the nature of arrogance. See, our culture that is under the demonic influence of moral relativism, the culture has hijacked the words arrogance and the words humility. And the culture has stealthily redefined these terms. The British writer G.K. Chesterton brilliantly describes this redefinition in his 1908 book, Orthodoxy. Here are Chesterton's words. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. In other words, the word of God. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. And isn't this what we're seeing right now? This is what we're seeing. Our culture is too humble, too modest to even be able to define what a woman is. And what the culture has done is redefine the word arrogance to mean conviction. And the word humility to mean uncertainty. And as Chesterton said, our culture has completely reversed the understanding of arrogance and humility. See, biblical humility is doubting ourselves, doubting our wisdom, our knowledge, our strength, our righteousness, our opinions. Biblical humility takes the gaze off of ourselves and places where it belongs, places it on Christ. We are to doubt ourselves, but we are never, never to doubt in Christ. We are to trust in Christ. We are to trust his word. Doubting Christ, doubting his word, this is not humility. This is unbelief. This is a sin. But the satanic redefinition says it's arrogant to trust in God's word. And it's humble for us to be uncertain. It's humble to be tentative. It's arrogant to believe and and declare what scripture actually says. To believe that it's absolute, that it's broad, that it applies to all. Megachurch Uh, Pastor Joel Osteen was on the Larry King Live uh, show and I think he he portrays this perfectly. Larry King asked him a very direct question. He asked him, is Jesus the only way to salvation? And you should have seen Osteen squirming. And I I would recommend this this video is on (coughs) YouTube. You can just, uh, you can uh, look it on, on YouTube and see it. He is squirming. He is uncomfortable. And he goes, you know, well, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm careful to say who can go to heaven. And Larry King, he, I mean, he, sees, he sees blood. He pushes him. He says, what about Jews? What about Muslims? Are they wrong? And Joel replies, you know, I don't know. I, I can't say they're wrong. You know, I know what right works for me and what the Bible teaches and, and having a relationship with Jesus. You know, I won't say they're wrong. You know, I, I don't know. And this waffling, this uncertainty on what the Bible teaches, this is seen by many as as being humble. Now, Pastor John MacArthur, he also was a frequent guest on on Larry King Live. And MacArthur would be unequivocal on those answers. He would state that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And if a person does not believe in Jesus, that person is lost. Very clear. 
And this view is seen as incredibly arrogant, incredibly judgmental, narrow-minded. Angry callers would call in and say, how could that guy be so hateful, so arrogant, so judgmental? And he's just saying what the Bible teaches. Now, conversely, a person can loudly declare their truth and provide no supporting evidence. And this is not seen as arrogant at all. This is seen as authentic. A person can declare, my God would never, and fill in whatever it is, never do X. And it's simply accepted as, as true. It's their reality. A biological male can declare that he is a female. And a biological female can declare that she is a male, contrary to all external evidence. And this person is not seen as arrogant. But rather, it's the person who submits to the evidence of reality, holds to reality. This is the person who is arrogant. This is the person who the culture sees as narrow-minded. And this redefinition is very confusing for Christians. Christians who rightfully want to kill their own pride and increase their humility. So how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect ourselves from falling victim to this deception? How do we keep from abandoning our, our faith and our conviction in an attempt to, to be what the culture calls humble, to fight against arrogance. Well, I think Paul, in this short section, in this little aside from his main argument, provides for us a great example of how to show genuine humility at the same time as showing faithful conviction. And the, the context for these verses that we're looking at is, is Paul's clear and unambiguous proclamation of the truth of the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. This is the gospel by which they are being saved. This is the gospel without which no one can be saved. No one can be made right with God apart from the gospel. And Paul is clear. Paul is bold. Paul is unequivocal with this proclamation. But Paul doesn't stop here. Paul provides hard, objective, verifiable, external evidence to back up his statement. It's not just his opinion. And he doesn't give his feelings. He doesn't give his truth. Paul gives facts. In verses 5 through 8, Paul says that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Paul lists the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. He lists Cephas, that's Peter. He lists the twelve, that's the twelve disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry, including Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot. Then Paul mentions the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Most of them were still alive at the time when Paul wrote this letter. And he continues listing James as the, the Lord's brother, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, then to the apostles. And this is, this is a larger group than the 12. And Paul ends this list with a reference to himself. And Paul puts himself last uh, because the resurrected uh, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, which was after Jesus' ascension. And scripture makes no mention of any other appearance of the risen Christ after he met and commissioned Paul on this road to Damascus. So that's why he puts himself last. And in this declaration, we see Paul's conviction about God's truth and his unwavering faith in Christ's resurrection. But then in verse 8, Paul changes 
from talking about the resurrection to talking about himself. And it's here that we see Paul's humility. Look at how Paul refers to himself in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, this word that's translated here, untimely born, it literally means stillborn. It's a, it's a lifeless miscarriage. Paul is comparing himself to a lifeless baby that died before it was even born. And from a spiritual perspective, Paul was dead, spiritually dead, when he encountered the risen Lord. See, of all the people mentioned in Scripture, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that have seen the risen Lord, Paul is the only one that we're told of that is an unbeliever at the time of the encounter. See, the women and the disciples that meet the risen Lord in the Gospels and Acts, they are all believers. Everyone who Jesus appears to is a believer except Paul. And even Paul's companions that were traveling with him on the road to Damascus, when they don't see Jesus. In Acts 9, we're told that only Paul sees him, only sees Jesus. Acts 9.7 says, The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. See, Paul was the only person to see the resurrected Christ while still an unbeliever. And it makes perfect sense for Paul to describe himself as a stillborn, because there is absolutely no spiritual life in Paul during this encounter. I mean, think about what Paul is saying. Think about the image that he presents with this word stillborn. Paul conveys the, the total and complete lack of any merit, any effort on his part with respect to his conversion, with respect to his regeneration. And not only is Paul a spiritual corpse, he is a corpse that has never even taken a breath in this world. He describes himself as one who has never existed outside his own mother's womb. And a person who, who lived a, a righteous life and, and died in old age, it can be argued that he built up some merit during his life that, that justifies him, that brings him grace. But for Paul, there's absolutely nothing that he did. He had no merit. He brought absolutely nothing to the table. It was all of God. It was all of grace. And this same reality is true for every single Christian. My friends, if you belong to Christ, you brought absolutely nothing to the table. Before coming to Christ, you were spiritually stillborn. I was spiritually stillborn. There was absolutely nothing in us that merited God's favor. It is all of grace. Augustus Toplady captured this uh, idea perfectly in the third verse of his classic hymn, Rock of Ages. He said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And if we truly understand this fact, that it is all of grace, it is all of Christ, we bring nothing to the table, this fact will naturally humble us. It will naturally fill us with an immense appreciation for the grace that we receive and the love that God has shown us, has called us and, and redeemed us. And it will make it impossible, impossible for us to ever look down on others because they did not receive this grace. And it's important for us to keep this in mind especially when we as, as Christians find ourselves on the outside of the culture. There is a lot of anger directed at us, especially right now, directed at Christians. And it's naturally for us to respond in kind, to want to respond. People are attacking us, we want to attack back. It's natural for us, if people are mocking us, to mock them. It's natural for us to dismiss them if they're dismissing us. If they're looking down at us, we will look down on them. And we'll say, how could they be so blind? of the things of God. How can they not know the difference between a, a man and a woman? It's like how the Lord described to Jonah, the people of Nineveh, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. That is the culture 
that's opposed us. And it's natural for us to want to fight back. But my friends, that is not our call. We must not look down on unbelievers. We must not see, we must not be hostile to them. We must pray for them. We must love them. We must understand that any light that we have is not to do to anything in us. It's not due to any righteousness that we have and they don't have. It is solely due to God's grace. God's grace poured out on us. And we are completely passive. We are dead. We are spiritually stillborn. And then God gave us life. Praise God. He gave us life. But Paul recognizes that his condition before God is in fact much worse than spiritual stillborn. Paul realized that if you want to look at merit, his condition as well as our condition is not simply a condition of neutrality. He knows that he actually is clearly guilty of some heinous effects against God. Look at verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And why is that? Why is he the least of the apostles? Why is he unworthy to be called an apostle? Well, Paul answers it in the rest of the verse. Because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul was not innocent. Paul was not neutral. Paul actively, and he was very efficient at this, actively and efficiently persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. In our New Testament reading that Hal read for us of Paul, it gives us Paul's own testimony before King Agrippa of the persecution that he did on the church. And listen to Paul's own words about his abusive treatment. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And it's easy for us to, to gloss over really the utter evil of this, what Paul did. It's easy for us to miss the, the intense pain and the fear that he caused God's people as he ruthlessly tracked down the Christians and put them in prison, even, even participated in killing them. And this persecution that Paul inflicted was not only physical, but it was also spiritual. To, Paul said to King Agrippa, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Notice that he says Paul tried to make them blaspheme. And he means to blaspheme by denying Jesus. See, here's the, the primary goal, not only of Paul's persecution, but really of how Satan tried to go after his, the church. The primary goal of persecution of Christians is not necessarily to hurt them, to kill them, to imprison them. The goal is to get them to deny the faith. See, the violence is not the end goal. It's simply the means to the goal. Satan wants us to deny Christ, to deny the faith, to renounce Christ, to become apostate. And in fact, the, the brutality faced in the persecutions throughout church history, they're really the result of the frustration and, and the persecutions of, the, of leaders and their utter ability, inability to get Christians to recant their faith. They want them to recant, and they can't. It's kind of like, think about Nebuchadnezzar with a fiery furnace. He didn't really want to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wanted them to bow down, and they wouldn't. And he got so angry, he had the, the, the furnace heated up to seven times its, its uh, regional temperature. And it was because they were showing the utter frustration, the utter helplessness that they have in the, in the face of these Christian martyrs. Now, this wicked abuse that Paul was committing against the Christians 
It was ultimately not against the Christians. It was ultimately directed against God himself. And even Paul, through, uh, through he was, though he thought he was defending God, he was actually persecuting God. Jesus said to Saul, in, in, in what we heard, read, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was stunned. He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And while Saul was persecuting the Christians, he was completely blind to the evil that he was doing. Again, Paul thought he was serving God. He thought the Christians, they were the blasphemers. And he thought he was the champion of of the Orthodox faith. And he was deceived. Paul thought he was a good guy. He thought he was on God's side. And notice that it's Paul's confidence is in himself. It's in himself that leads to this wicked pride. And it leads to this self-deception that he's doing God's will. When in fact, what he is doing is evil. His confidence was in himself. It was in his intellect. It was in his pharisaical traditions. It was in his own prejudices. It was in his own sense of superiority. All this confidence was in himself. It was not in God. It was not what God was able to do. Not what God was doing. Doing doing through his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit-empowered church. But now, now that Paul is, is, is converted, now that Paul has had a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, now that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, now Paul realizes that he had absolutely no confidence in himself. As he said in Philippians 3.8, that he counts all these things, all these things that he did while he was unconverted, all these rituals that he kept while he was unconverted, he compares them as rubbish. Rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ and being known by him. And Paul now has freedom. Paul now has freedom to, to clearly and plainly acknowledge his past failures precisely because he has no confidence in himself. His confidence is not in himself. But if his confidence is not in himself, where is the confidence? It has to be somewhere else. Where do we find the confidence if it's not in ourselves? That's our tendency to want to have confidence in ourselves. Where is it if it's not in ourselves? We'll see this in the very next verse. Even though he in in and of himself, he is like a stillborn baby. In and of himself, he is the the least of the apostles and not worthy to even be called an apostle because of the evil he did persecuting God's people and opposing Christ, opposing the living God. And the first part of, of verse 10 tells us where this confidence originates. And it's from God. It's all of grace. Verse 10 tells us, but by the grace of God... I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. See, it's all of grace, and this grace is not in vain. See, despite Paul's lack of merit, despite our lack of merit, Paul's confidence, our confidence, is not in ourselves. It is in God. It is in God's grace toward us in Christ. And this confidence, this confidence gives us the freedom and the joy to show true humility. And the reason why is because our security is not in ourselves. It's not in the image that we project. We do not need to convince everyone. We do not need to convince ourselves that we are better than we really are. See, we can readily admit our failures because our failures really mean nothing. Our confidence is in Christ. Our security is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And it's only when we have internalize this marvelous truth, then, only then, can we exercise true humility and we can be free. We can be free from this grace-killing and debilitating sin 
of pride. And while this shift in mindset from putting our, our confidence in, in ourself to putting our confidence in, in Christ, in his grace, in his promises, while this is the most joyful and, and, and satisfying and freeing thing we can do, it's also the most difficult. Because every fiber of our old nature will fight against making this shift. And one of the biggest hindrances in, in making this shift is that our, our fallen thinking will tell us, it will whisper in our ear and say, that's too easy. That's too easy. You mean to tell me that, that my worth and my identity and my security are all given to me as a free gift by Christ and his grace? If that's the case, that's going to make us lazy. Right? Why am I going to do anything? I'm just going to sit back and, and, and take it easy because I don't have to do anything. Right? We need the fear. We need the uncertainty to, to push ourselves, to work hard, to push ourselves to be all that we can be. And if we don't take any pride in ourselves, then, then we'll be nothing. We will be lazy. This is what the world tells us. This may be even what you're thinking at this moment. And this is how I think. But does grace really make us lazy? Look at Paul's answer in the second part of verse 10. Paul says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. See, for the born-again believer, grace does not make us lazy. Grace makes us work even harder. See, we are free. We are free from slavery to self. We are free from deception and hypocrisy that come with, with trying to present this ideal image that we have it all together. This image that we, we so desperately need to be true because we have so much riding on it. But when we're free, when we are secure in Christ, we no longer are motivated by fear and pride, but rather we are motivated by love and, and excitement and joy. See, all for the purpose, all for the purpose of glorifying God. And we work harder because we know, we know that we can't lose. We have nothing to fear. We have everything to gain. And this is, this is our, our deepest desires are filled, that we can actually glorify God. We can actually enjoy him forever. And in Christ, we know, we know that we are eternally safe. We know we can't lose. And then we can boldly live for Christ Attempting things that, that would seem impossible. Things that, that it seems like there's no way you can do what God has called me to do. We can risk failure because we know failure is not fatal. We know we are safe. We are eternally safe in Christ, in his grip, in his grace. And it gets even better than this. As Christians, we do work hard. Harder than we would if we were not regenerate. But this work, real work, that we really do, this work is not empowered by us. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by his grace in us. As Paul says in the second half of verse 10, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in that is with me. So you've ever had times when you're working, and you're working really hard to get something, and it's just not flowing. It feels like you're stuck in mud. You, you have no motivation. You have no joy. You're frustrated. You just continue. It's like you're beating your head against the wall. And then you just try to muscle. You say, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's just getting worse and worse. But then there are other times, other times when everything flows. And other times when you are in the zone, you're working hard, probably a lot harder than when you're stuck in the mud. Because I know when I'm stuck in the mud, I give up. I want to look into distraction because I'm so frustrated. But when you're in the zone, everything goes smoothly. And I've had times, I've had time writing sermons. And I couldn't, I couldn't type fast enough. The Lord has given me the words. I'm typing as fast as I can. And I'm going. I'm working hard. And before I know it, five, six hours have passed. I'm like, wow, where did that go? I'm working hard, but it's not me. 
It is the Holy Spirit. It's the grace of God that is working through me. And there's nothing more joyful than this. And do you see, do you see how this fact protects us against pride? But it also fills us with this intense joy, the, the joy and the privilege of being used by God. So let me see, say this as clearly as possible. So if you focus on yourself, if you focus on your own performance, you will constantly be oscillating back and forth between these two states. So the first state will be when you fail. And, and you will be humble, right? Because you clearly see just how puny and completely inadequate your own efforts are. But this humility will cause resentment. It will cause discouragement. It will cause despair. And you'll be generally miserable because your whole identity, your whole security, your whole worth is wrapped up in your own performance. So that's the one state. But the second state of focusing on yourself is that you'll actually succeed. And then you'll be happy. You'll feel on top of the world. Your, your worth, your identity, your security will all be fine because it's based on yourself and you succeeded. But you'll also be filled with incredible arrogance, incredible pride. You'll be haughty because you succeeded. And you will look down on others who failed. You say, well, I did it. You should be able to do it. And, and you'll, you'll look down. You'll, you'll have this incredible arrogance. And here's the thing. The pride, that pride will block grace. And that pride will set you up for the next failure. And then you'll constantly be oscillating back and forth between pride and despair. That's what happens when you put your hope and your confidence and your trust in yourself and your performance. But if you focus on Christ... You will only experience one state, whether outwardly you succeed or outwardly you fail. And that state is a state of humility and a state of joy. So you'll be humble because whether you succeed or fail, you will know that it's not about you. It's about Christ. You know that he will be glorified whether you outwardly succeed or outwardly fail. And because of this, because your security, because your identity, because your worth are not in yourself, it's in Christ, you know they can never diminish you can never lose them. It's regardless of our outward performance. In reality, in Christ, we have incredible joy. A joy that cannot be taken away from us. Lastly, I want to ask what this humble and joyful work looks like. What does it, what does it accomplish in us? And Paul gives the answer in verse 11. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. See, the result of our work is primarily spiritual rather than physical. It's eternal rather than temporal. And Paul is saying that this work that was done through him, through his hard work, by the grace of God, empowered by God, and in Paul's case it was preaching the gospel, he said the result was that the Corinthians believed and they were brought into the kingdom of God. They were eternally changed from a state of death to life. Now not all of us are called to preach, but every single Christian is given spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts for the service of the church and for building up the kingdom of God. And when we use these gifts, when we work hard in exercising these gifts with the Holy Spirit enabling and empowering these gifts through the grace of God, we can then be confident, confident that God will work. We can be confident that he will use this work to build his kingdom and can bring the lost to himself. My friends, there is no higher calling. There is no higher calling. There is no greater joy. And when we see God work this way, and we are privileged to be part of this work and work through us, it will humble us and it will thrill us. So our application is, is, is simple. Stand firm on God's word. Stand firm on Christ. Put no confidence 
in our own abilities, in our own opinions, but never, never waver from God's truth declared in his word and resist Satan's strategy, resist the the culture's uh, temptation for us to redefine humility to be uncertainty and arrogance to be conviction. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Paul's example. And Father, we pray for each one of us, Lord, that we will be uncertain of ourselves, we will be humble in ourselves, but we will never, ever, ever waver in the truth of your word. We will stand firm in that conviction, and we will trust you, Lord. So Father, I pray for each one of us in here, whatever we are struggling with at this moment, Lord, we pray for your grace to be sufficient, and that we will stand firm in that grace. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.